Hello and welcome to A Couple of Your Files, where we discuss cultural realities and dissonance. And I think it's safe to say there's a lot of cultural dissonance to discuss. My name is Bailey Alexander, and I'm here with my favorite foil, Francis. So let's talk Turkey first. So hey, Francis, do you think Turkey will allow the entry of Sweden and Finland into NATO? You know, they, they may let them into NATO, but they won't do it because of pressure. Turkey's issue with Sweden and Finland is that Sweden and Finland have been welcoming to what the Turks consider to be Kurdish terrorists. Uh, you know, the Turks are fighting a covert war against the Kurds uh, for some time. You know, they resent the fact that these guys can basically go off and get asylum in Sweden and Finland. And then Sweden and Finland want something. So Turkey is saying, no, unless you move on this uh, recognizing terrorist thing, we will not let you into NATO. And everyone should remember that NATO is a voluntary association, which every single country has a veto. So Turkey can and will block accession uh, into NATO for anybody that it feels it has to, um, in this case, uh, Sweden and Finland. And uh, I believe there's going to be some negotiations next week where, you know, the Swedes and Finns are going to go down there and go, oh, but we want to get in. And then we'll see what the Turks do. But uh, Turkey is uh, uh, a very strong uh, nation and doesn't take a lot of crap from anybody. So, yeah, you have a favorite quote from Napoleon. He said, if there were to be a world capital, it would be Istanbul. Yeah, Istanbul is is by far the largest city in Europe. And it is an amazing place. I, I've been there a few times this year on business. It's, it's astonishing. I mean, it's huge. It's twice the size of London. You know, it it's straddles the Asia and, and Europe border at the Bosphorus. And it is a, an, an incredible place. And Erdogan, who is a little bit of a fundamentalist, doesn't get a lot of votes in Istanbul. His support base is the rest of the country, which is more rural. Yeah, so Napoleon said that. And Forever, Istanbul was the most important city in Europe, you know, ever since Rome passed the torch. It was, in fact, in med medieval times, if you referred to the city, you were talking about Istanbul because it was there, it was enormous. Uh, the Hagia Sophia, built by uh, Constantine, was the largest church in Christendom for over a thousand years until they built St. Peter's in Rome. It's a, it's a pretty straightforward, straight, strange place. And the Turks, are an interesting people. They are uh, uh, very um, proud and they don't seem to have any idea of, you know, succumbing to pressure. You know, they, they don't do that. You know, I, I doubt that anybody's going to convince them to do it with any kind of threat or, or else. And, you know, there, there's literally nothing you can, you can wave a stick at Turkey and, and get them to do anything. Uh, the only way that anything is going to happen is if somebody listens to their concerns and makes the concessions that they want in return for, you know, what, what you want from the Turks. Okay, so now that we've talked Turkey, let's, uh, let's move on to Pepe Escobar. He's an interesting geopolitical free thinker who travels the globe constantly and talks directly to the different parties and players in these issues. He's a Brazilian journalist. His central issue being you cannot understand that war in Ukraine if you don't understand what happened prior to February when Putin launched the war. If you don't understand the politics of the Donbass, you can't put this conflict into context. If you don't understand how Putin did try and dialogue with Washington and express his security concerns, and Washington simply refused to dialogue. So, and more importantly, what's compounded this conflict, this narrative, is a toxic partnership 
between the neocons and the neoliberal, well, neoliberal or liberal humanitarians. For example, when Hillary Clinton invaded Libya, that was a catastrophe specifically for Italy, here where we live, and the damage it did, the rise of Salvini. So like I said, you have this toxic mix. We're living through, you know, we remember living through the Obama years where we had such hope and there were so many wars with these liberal humanitarians. So back to uh, Pepe Escobar, he with a great name. He talks about needing to understand how the Donbass was shelled by the Ukrainians for years, how they reached out for Putin's help, and because Putin made this horrific decision, Escobar says the West simply cannot put it into proper context. Why would he make such a decision to invade Ukraine? So now it's just so easy to say Putin is pure evil. The, the problem is that the Americans uh, basically don't, really understand Russia. There's a lot of talking heads on the media and so forth and so on, pontificating about Russia and how the Russians are and all this other stuff. And they're talking about a cartoon version of Russia. And most of those people have never been to Russia. They haven't got any Russian friends, uh, don't understand Russia. And they, they basically draw parallels back with the Soviet Union, where we also had another narrative there where the Soviet Union bad, uh, West is good, and, you know, it all boils down to simplistic stuff. At the end of the day, the problem, the, the, the core underlying root cause problem of the Americans is that both sides, the liberals and the Republican neocons, they have uh, an almost uncontrollable urge to tell everybody what to do. They, they don't like the idea that somebody out there could basically do something that they doesn't fit into their narrative. They're like, we want the Russians to do this. And they didn't do this, therefore they're evil. And you're saying uh, the Russians in particular are really sick of the unipolar world order with uh, America being the single world power. They miss the Cold War where there were at least two powers and where people could you know, decide what they wanted to do. And there was a balance in some ways. The Russian people uh, are just as patriotic as the American people. And the, the story that they're being fed is that there's a bunch of Russian-speaking people in Donbass that are descended from Russians that used to be part of the Soviet Union, uh, and they moved there, they were moved there by Stalin, you know, generations ago, but they're basically Russians, and they're being oppressed, and the Ukrainians overthrew their legitimately elected government without having actual legal basis for it, and then they start throwing their weight around and saying, you can't speak Russian in schools. Uh, everyone has to learn Ukrainian, even though these people have never spoken Ukrainian in their lives. And they're all feeling pretty pressured. Uh, Crimea in particular um, has always been Russian, right? It was Peter the Great. In fact, there was, a, there was something called the Crimean War, where the Brits and French and everybody went down to fight the Russians uh, in Crimea, because Crimea was Russian. And the, the Turks were a major power in that uh, in that time frame as well. So Crimea is Russian, has always been Russian, was added to Ukraine by Khrushchev, who was Ukrainian. And it was added because it was easier to administer from Kiev than from Moscow, because it doesn't have a contiguous border with the rest of Russia. You know, they needed to build that amazing new bridge uh, in order to connect it to Russia. And it was connected to Ukraine. And at the time, the Soviet Union was one country. So it was like, hey, is this part of Louisiana or is it part of Texas? Well, it makes sense for it to be part of Texas. Let's just do that. So it was a kind of an arbitrary decision. 
And then, you know, now, you know, the Russians, the people of Crimea voted to become part of Russia. Russia voted to accept them back into Russia. And for the Russians, that's a legitimate election, much more legitimate than the Ukrainian uh, presidential elections, where they threw out the pro-Russian president without having an, an impeachment process or following their own constitution. They just said, oh, we're throwing him out, and that's a fait accompli. And then the, the West jumps on that. Oh, yeah, we recognize that. And you're like, you know, you, you can't pick and choose sides and say, you know, Juan Guaido is the president of Venezuela when he's not, or somebody else should be the president of Syria when he's not. You need to let the people of the place decide who should be uh, in charge. And it's not, you know, you can always find somebody who says, oh, he's not legitimate. Uh, we didn't get a chance to vote or we didn't vote. Or, you know, if we had another election and the people didn't really be afraid of that guy, then it would vote like this. You don't know that. So what George Washington said at best, beware of foreign entanglements. And America, since the First World War, has done nothing but foreign entanglements. They have 800 military bases around the world. Uh, Russia has, I think, three, you know, that are not in Russia. You know, people, people, especially the Russian, the Russians yearn, and I'm talking about the people, not just Putin. Uh, the Russians yearned for a time when they were taken seriously, they were respected, and they weren't pushed around and told what they should think and what they should do, and that capitalism is the only way. You know, they've got a lot of corruptions and a lot of problems, but they don't think America is the answer to those problems. And that's at the root of what's going on. And Russia also historically has relied on strategic depth in order to defend itself. The Germans had to overextend their supply lines to get to Moscow, and that's what caused them to fail. And, and they need strategic depth. And they don't have it if Ukraine becomes part of NATO, because Kiev is not that far from Moscow. Th that's what makes them nervous. The Russian population is largely centered in St. Petersburg and Moscow. You know, both of those things are now dangerously close to the Western borders. Uh, St. Petersburg is quite close to Estonia. And Moscow is relatively close to the Ukrainian border. So they, they feel that that's the line in the sand. They don't want that. Uh, they want to enforce neutrality, like Austria, like Ireland, like Finland used to be, and now Finland's trying to join NATO, because they don't, want, they don't want to have armed powers that are potentially threatening close to their population centers. And let's face it, the Americans almost created World War III when the Russians had a base in Cuba. Uh, and Cuba is further from Washington, D.C. than the Ukrainian border is from Moscow. So, you know, let's take it in perspective and understand what made them afraid. So having said that, you know, it still doesn't justify the fact that they invaded Ukraine and they shouldn't have. They were, they were basically talking, as you say, and as Pepo Escobar says, for seven years trying to negotiate a settlement. Say, listen to our concerns. These are our concerns. And two concerns. One, we don't want NATO close to Moscow. And two, we don't want you to oppress the Russian-speaking people in Donbass and leave us alone with Crimea because Crimea voted to be part of us and, and it always was part of us uh, up until very recently when it was handed over as an administrative thing in the Soviet Union. And now you talk like that is the end of the world and borders have never changed and Ukraine has existed for a thousand years. It hasn't. Ukraine, Western Ukraine is basically Polish. Uh, used to be part of the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth. And Ukrainian is very close to Polish as a language. And Eastern Ukraine is Russian. 
So, you know, Ukraine really is struggling to create an identity. It's not the only one, right? Kazakhstan is similar. Well, just to underline that point, I think Zelensky was in Warsaw last week signing a number of agreements with Poland, allowing Poland to basically be elected in Ukraine. Our brothers, man, we're we're the same people, right? And if there's one thing that is an absolute certainty in geopolitics and has been forever is that nobody hates each other as much as the Poles and Russia. So anything the Russians do, the Poles are automatically against. And anything the Poles do, the Russians are automatically against. You know, you don't have to look twice. It's like gravity. If you drop a hammer, it falls. If you have a Pole and a Russian in a room, pretty soon there's going to be a fight. You know, that's just the way it is and has always been. Well, they sure want to blame Germany, don't they? I mean, I've really felt this sense since the war began. There's all this pressure to uh, to blame Germany. Germany is the, one of the most peaceful countries around these days. Obviously, they learned from the, the lesson from their own history. Uh, you know, every country has a certain character. The Germans are fundamentally competent, and they've basically you know boiled down uh, that competence into peaceful endeavors. They basically signed up for not being you know trying to conquer everybody around them. They they were basically now you know part of Europe partnering with the French and the other founding members of the EU to build something bigger and better and more prosperous for their kids and so forth. In order to do that, they have what they call the the Wirtschaftswunder, which is the German economy, basically. They're the largest exporting country in the world, surprisingly, because by dollar value, they're exporting as much as China, right? So it's just astonishing how much they shove out the door. But fundamentally, they basically are, let's get together, let's figure out what we need. And in order to make that work, they need raw materials, and then they build finished products. And raw materials are essential to modern economies, and supply chains dictate that you get the raw materials in the most efficient way possible from the closest source. That's how economics works, and the Germans are very good at it. So that is why they basically bought a lot of Russian gas, a lot of Russian steel, a lot of Russian coal, you know, basically not so much coal, but a lot of raw materials that are needed to drive German industry, manganese, aluminum, things that make cars, you know, all that stuff comes from Russia and others, but but a lot of it from Russia. Russians have a lot of raw materials, not a lot of industrial infrastructure. The Germans have superlative industrial infrastructure and not a lot of raw materials. So you would think that the two sides are more or less made for each other. And historically, they've always been somewhat aligned. Catherine the Great of Russia was German. And, uh, you know, they they basically have had a long and checkered past and and historically connected. And the Kaiser and uh, the Tsar were were basically cousins. So, you know, at the end of the day, uh, Germany has a natural alignment with Russia. That is distorted by the Cold War, right? Uh, when, when the Soviets were there and they were communists and it became communism versus capitalism, uh, West Germany was right on the border and, and basically aligned with NATO and NATO was created to defend uh, all of these member states and so forth. So, you know, that's really Germany's thing. Germany is like, we're past that now, right? We don't need NATO. We need, we need to be peaceful. We need to figure out how to work together. We'll buy stuff at whatever the price is. It's a decent price. And that money you could use to build up your economy and fix your, your stuff and create prosperity for your people. And we will use those raw materials 
to build value-added products, which we then sell to the rest of the world. We'll sell you our Mercedes, for example. So, you know, that's the German view is like, let's all get together and work on how we can work on making stuff happen. The Chinese have a similar attitude. They don't want to go to war with anybody. They're like, let's do business. Let's, let's find out what you have and let's see what we have and let's see what we can trade to you and let's make it all happen. So, you know, that's the reality. That's, that, that is what most countries want is peace and trade and, and everybody does their own thing and we all move forward. As we've entered the era of saying the quiet part out loud, Blinken announced their specific aims of neutralizing Russia before they can move on to China. Hey, Francis, listen, why don't we move on to the Silk Road? That's become a topic as of late again. Um, Why don't you uh, give us a little bit of history on the Silk Road? Okay, the Silk Road is a reincarnation 2.0, if you will, of the original Silk Road, which is the route that Marco Polo traveled uh, to China back in the medieval times, right? So uh, what is the Silk Road? The Silk Road is the route that merchants used to take to bridge East and West, okay? At the time, China was the largest economy in the world. They had the most people. They're quiet, industrious. They had things like silks and and gunpowder and and all sorts of things that were attractive to the West. And the West had some products that were good for the East. So Marco Polo being a Venetian and the Venetians being a nation of traders, they figured, you know, a trader is somebody who buys stuff where it's cheap in Europe and then takes it and sells it for a profit in China, buys stuff in China, and then takes it back to Europe and sells it for a profit in Europe. And that's how the trading works, right? It's tra- great trading nations do that. So that was there. And then various things happened. The Chinese went through a period of stagnation. They went through a civil war. And, uh, you know, they, they really had problems uh, when Chairman Mao took over uh, the mainland, right? It was, it was very corrupt. The education wasn't there. There was tremendous poverty. And there was starvation. There was all sorts of things going on. So the Chinese basically got their stuff together and started building their own economy and getting back to a position which they have occupied in the past as the, as one of the central pillars of the world economy and now they are back to that and you know for a long time they weren't but now they are you know when when chairman mao died the economy of china was smaller than italy so you know now of course it's a, it's the second biggest in the world after the united states and it's an internal economy, right? They really have an internal market that is uh, tremendous. So, you know, they're, in fact, uh, when you talk, you know, about China and you look at India, which has a similar population, the Google of India is Google, but the Google of China is Weibo. So China's built their own infrastructure. They're not relying on the uh, multinational American companies. And, and they're just basically doing it on purpose, building their economy stronger and stronger and stronger. So the new Silk Road is all about China's efforts to reopen to the rest of the world and make it easier for them to export their products to the West. For example, they're building railroad and the railroad crosses Asia and the deserts and mountains and all that other stuff. And it allows, you know, cars and cars of railroad which is electric, to basically be transported into European markets directly, much faster than by boat, and much more economically or ecologically friendly, because it's not producing a whole bunch of pollution like the the ships are. So their idea was, by building this network, the Silk Road, 
2.0, we're essentially giving us the ability to reach our markets, our target markets much more efficiently. And the recipients of that are also going to prosper because they'll be able to sell their goods to the Chinese uh, or their raw materials to the Chinese, in the case of Russia. It's going to be economically super beneficial. And, you know, at the end of the Silk Road initiative, they will end up with a stronger world economy. Everybody will benefit from that, except for the Americans who will lose a lot of influence. And, you know, that, that's, a, that's a very positive thing, right? It's, it's, a, it's a great thing for everybody. Now, the Chinese are going to drive hard bargains for building the infrastructure and, and people will be paying for it for a while. But that's okay because, you know, you get brand new port, brand new railroad system, a new market for your goods and services, and you can bootstrap your economy on the back of that, which is actually very good. And the Chinese are quietly doing other pretty interesting uh, geopolitical things. The Chinese are using the dollars that they have, which is they have a mountain of dollars because everybody pays them in dollars for their stuff. They're using the dollars to build the infrastructure. So they're spending the dollars. You know, they're basically doing new deals with, uh, for example, the BRICS, which is the largest trading um, consortium, where they're using their own currencies instead of the dollar. Uh, to trade. So they're buying oil from Russia in yuan or, or rubles and uh, not in dollars anymore. So that is slowly encroaching on America's control of the financial system. That is going to either continue or America will take drastic steps and you know, it may blow everything up and there we are. I, I don't know what's going to happen. But you know, given peace and quiet, the Chinese are going to take everything over. China is focused on the main prize, you know, it, it, it's, it's strange, right? Uh, take, take Biden's efforts in Ukraine right now, right? He's like, he just sent them 40 billion, but he didn't send them 40 billion. He basically paid American military manufacturers to make more bombs. And then he sent them the bombs. So what are the bombs going to be used for? Well, the bombs are going to be used to blow up stuff in Ukraine because the Ukrainians don't have the ability to project them into Russia anyway. So they're blowing their own country up a little bit more. And at the end of the day, they're going to owe the Americans money for these bombs. The Chinese are like, look, we're going to buy your grain or whatever it is you make. And we're going to build ports and railroads and infrastructure and stuff like that. And, you know, which one would you rather have, bombs or infrastructure? It's as stark as that, you know, people are not seeing that because of all the media uh, propaganda. But at the end of the day, you know, one side is basically trying to build infrastructure and not tell people how to run their countries or what to do, or you must be democratic. It's like, hey, you do whatever you want in your country. We're just here to trade. And the other side is like, we're telling you what to do. We're telling you who you should elect. We're basically embargoing people that don't do what we say. The Americans almost uh, embargoed Volkswagen because they sold cars to Iran. And you're like, well, why shouldn't Volkswagen sell cars to Iran? You know, it's not weapons. It's cars. You know, we make cars. They need cars. They're going to pay us for cars. What, what's wrong with that? That's as capitalist as it gets. But apparently it's not capitalist enough because it's not what the Americans want. So therefore, we're going to block you from the financial system and seize all your stuff that you have lying around. I mean, that, that's another thing that's sort of amazing. The Russians had foreign reserves in London and New York because those are the financial centers. 
and the Americans are like, well, we're going to we're going to basically freeze them. Okay, and it's like, okay, well, you freeze them because you think you have the right to do that. And then we're going to freeze them, and then we're going to steal them and give them to Ukraine as reparations. And you're sitting there going, like, you're supposed to. How would you like it if a bank basically froze your bank account and gave all the money to somebody who said that they had a grievance with you, right? I mean, you, the banks are not supposed to get involved in the, that sort of stuff, you know? I mean, when there's reparations and there's an internationally accepted trial and, and so forth and so on, and somebody does a treaty to end the war, which is signed and so forth and so on, then maybe there should be repayments. But you don't get to just steal the money and then claim that you're the financial repository and you, you should be trusted with people's money. What's going to happen is no one's going to leave their money in your bank accounts. Cyprus had a bunch of bank accounts and they decided to steal the money for people who had more than 10 grand in the bank account in order to uh, uh, repay some loans or something. And you're sitting there going like, what happened? Everybody took their money out of Cyprus because nobody likes people who steal money. So, you know, it's, it's, it's so destructive and, you know, America can still turn it around, but they really seem to be blinded at the moment uh, with this disease about, you know, tell everybody what to do. So let's move on to Eurasia. Uh, you helped start a company in Kazakhstan. What are, what are, the, what are the countries in Eurasia? Uh, it says here, Armenia, Azerbaijan, Belarus, Georgia, Kazakhstan, Kyrgyzstan, I'm not saying that right, Moldova, Russian Federation, Tajikistan, Turkmenistan, Ukraine, and Uzbekistan. Well, Kyrgyzstan doesn't exist, so that's already wrong. Well, I keep going back to Pepe Escobar because he's uh, he's traveled to all these places across Eurasia and he's talked to the parties and the players, and he just insists it's quite an interesting piece of the geopolitical puzzle right now. Uh, you know, Eurasia still has quite substantial raw materials. The countries don't have a particularly good economy. But don't they play specifically into these energy wars? You know, it all depends, right? Kazakhstan has a whole lot of oil, for example. But Kazakhstan has lots of internal problems. They just had riots which were put down forcibly by, by military. So just because you have the, the energy and, and the stuff doesn't mean that you can peacefully create a, a prosperity for your people. They've got a lot of corruption. The president family took a great deal of the, the country's wealth and made it personal. And the people don't see those benefits and therefore they get, you know, riots and so forth. And then they're, they're exacerbated by people who, you know, encourage that sort of thing. You know, the, the color revolutions and so forth and so on. The, the, the point is that, you know, they, they have serious internal problems. And I'm not saying that the people who are revolting against some of these corrupt leaders are wrong. You know, they deserve a decent future and, you know, it would be great if they could get it. If they don't have a system where they can replace their governments uh, peacefully, then maybe they do have to overthrow their um, oppressors. That's a long established foundation. America did that to the Brits right at the beginning. The Romanians had a revolution. You know, people have had revolutions and uh, the end result has been that they've been able to bootstrap themselves and get really better economies and better lives for their people. Whether that happens or not depends, right? There's a lot of people that have had revolutions where it didn't turn out so well. But, you know, that's part of what makes humans humans, right? Just get on with it, do your thing. The interesting thing about Eurasia is really the raw materials. The world is becoming more and more connected. Uh, supply chains are all global now. People need 
those raw materials. Uh, Afghanistan, for example, is one of the largest uh, sources of lithium, and lithium is essential for everything. I mean, car batteries, um, uh, watches, computers, you name it, right? The, all the battery technology is based on lithium at the moment, and Afghanistan produces it. So that's interesting. Will they continue to produce it well under the Taliban? I don't know. But there are people looking at it saying, we need that. How do we get it? We can either buy it from them or we can ferment insurrection and buy it from whom replaces them or whatever. But people are always going to chase the raw materials. And, you know, we've exhausted the raw materials in the West. So we need the raw materials coming from Eurasia primarily in order to do stuff. The Chinese have the same issue and they also want the same raw materials. So the question is, who's going to get the, the goodies is it going to be the Chinese or is it going to be the West? Uh, and that's an open question. I don't know the answer to that. Well, as we talk about the national character of countries, what always strikes me is their different sense of time. You know, you think of China and that extraordinary railroad. Oh, for them, 100 years is nothing. And of course, the Russians, they have a completely different sense of time, I think. Yeah, jury's out on who's going to win that. OK, uh, the Russians are finding it much harder than they thought it would take. But on the flip side, Russian character is such that they're going to continue to double down until they get what they want. The Russians haven't given in and, and been defeated by anybody for a thousand years, right? They stopped the Mongols. They stopped, uh, you know, all, all sorts of people, including Hitler and That's Napoleon uh, and everybody, right? So the Russians will fight and they lose. They, they spend blood like water. In the, in the Second World War, they lost 25 million people and they didn't surrender. Uh, you know, 25 million. That's, yeah, Afghanistan, they, well, they didn't surrender. In Afghanistan, they were requested in by the, the Afghan government to help maintain peace and order, okay? The, the Afghan government was aligned to the Soviets. The Soviets went in there. They were fighting locals who were backed by the United States in uh, Afghanistan, right? And then the government collapsed and the Soviets were like, well, what are we doing here? We, we don't give a shit what happens to Afghanistan. Let's go home. It's the same with American Vietnam, right? I mean, why is American Vietnam? You don't have any Americans in Vietnam. Uh, why are we losing all these soldiers in Vietnam? That's not, it is, the Americans were defeated because they wanted to fight that fight. But the Russians were like, you know, we're here as a favor to do, to help these guys and, now our helicopters are being shot down by uh, Stinger missiles, uh, which have been provided by the Americans, and it ain't worth it. We're just going to go. But that's a very different proposition to defending Russia, okay, and Russian people. And in the, in the Donbass, the Russians think those people are Russian, okay, and the Crimeans are Russian. So let's see just how let's roll over and we don't care anymore, uh, the Russians are. The Russians will defend Russians until the cows come home. Same with the Americans. The Americans would never allow American people in, let's say, Hawaii to get taken over by um, you know, somebody else, let's say the Russians. If the Russians invaded Hawaii, America would fight until the last dog to free it because it's one of the 50 states and it's an attack on everybody and we just won't tolerate. And the Russians are the same. So, you know, there's no good outcome from that war that is going to, unless the Ukrainians get tired of blowing up their own country and saying, like, we'll give you Crimea, we won't give you the Donbass, but we'll let the Donbass have some autonomy so the Russians have some face saving. The Russians are going to stay there forever. 
what's going to happen? The Ukrainians are like, oh, we've got now fancy new American weapons. Well, the Russians have nuclear bombs. If the Russians feel like they're losing, they're blow shit up, right? Because they think it's existential. So, you know, you're like, just how far do you want to push the nuclear power that has the most nuclear bombs into a corner? You know, and, you know, for America, it, it looks like a video game. They're all sitting on the couch eating popcorn, rooting for the Ukrainian side. But it's not a joke to the people on the ground. And the Russians are not playing a game. They think it's existential and they're going to stay there until they get what they need, period. It's not going to change. You know, I, I don't have high hopes that the conflict is going to end with a Russian defeat. It will end with maybe a stalemate where the Russians will accept some position, but Crimea will definitely stay Russian. It's never going to give that up. So let's see what happens. Well, what about uh, go back to Turkey and the Black Sea? Turkey used to own the Black Sea, and now the Russians are blockading. On It's actually an interesting thing. The, the, the Russians are closing off Ukraine's export ports. They've captured Maripol and they're blockading Odessa, which means that the Ukrainians don't really have an export capacity. They have to ship stuff through Moldova and uh, Romania to Costanza in order to ship the stuff out. And the port of Costanza doesn't have the capacity to get all the grain out. So there's going to be some very hungry people that haven't got access to the grain. And the Ukrainians are also going to find it hard to actually harvest it in the middle of a war. So, you know, it's a, it's a tough situation. And the people that are going to starve are people like the Egyptians, not the Ukrainians themselves. But, you know, it's unfortunate. That's what happens when you war. Well, it certainly feels like Groundhog Day, this propaganda for the war. It feels like Iraq all over again. And then uh, now we've, what have we got? We've got 200 mass shootings in America, and it's only May. I just think the Americans are so traumatized. I think when we left, one in four were, met, were self-medicated. Then it was up to one in three, and perhaps it's now one in half, half the country is now self-medicated. Who knows? It's difficult with all these, uh, the way the, the politics are shifting in America. They've been... The Republicans are focusing on the local boards and the local legislators, and we may have rule by the minority. It's an approach. I mean, you know, the Republicans are like, we want these things. In order to get those things, we're going to, our plan is to take over the local politics and then elect more people to the state politics. And then eventually we'll pass all these laws and challenge all these things and we'll get what we want. Okay. It's an approach. But the underlying cause is that disease about, you know, I think this is right, and therefore I'm going to force everybody else to agree with me, right? There's no live and let live. Uh, I feel like this, and you can feel something different, and let's, let's leave it at that. There's just a constant pressure to force everybody to believe what my side wants. And, and that's what causes the unhappiness. And maybe some of that medication that you're talking about, because, you know, they, they got to take, they got to get, let go of the authoritarianism and forcing other people to do what you want and, and allowing other people to live and let live, even if it's not what you would do. Right. I mean, you know, I don't believe in this. Okay, fine. You can believe what you want. It's fine. No one's making you do anything. Right. You do whatever you want. You let me do whatever I want. Even if you disagree with me, you need to have an ability to allow other people to have a difference of opinion. And that's what's lacking right now. And it's lacking on both sides. I agree the Republicans are more egregious, but the Republicans are also more strategic, right? They've actually got a plan and they're slowly implementing their plan. And the Democrats are sitting on the sidelines and complaining about the Republican plan. They're saying, look what these guys are doing. 
So yeah, okay, so what are you gonna do about it besides sitting on the sidelines and complaining? You need to get up and do something equally intelligent to get your point of view across, or you could basically reach out and try to educate people and get the country back to joining again and being less polarized. Biden promised he was going to you know, be the uniter, right? And he's failing miserably. And I don't know if anybody can now because it's become so polarized that it's, uh, it's almost hopeless. But, you know, America is going down, right? The, the shock is going to maybe wake everybody up and what, the aftermath will be, you know, America pulls its socks up and starts becoming a great nation once again, eventually. But it may take losing its position as the center of the financial world. Uh, it may take, uh, you know, everybody recognizing that America is the largest debtor of all time ever and, and, you know, not being able to afford to spend as much as the rest of the world combined on the military. Get smaller, get humbler, focus on your own problems, fix your own problems, and then rejoin the, the, the community of nations, right? At the moment, you're trying to lead, but you have so many internal problems really nobody wants to follow right you know it needs to it needs to be addressed and it needs to be addressed in a fundamental way um and i i don't know what's going to wake them up to make them do that i just watched the uh, godfather too you weren't into it anyway they have those amazing vignettes with all the italians coming to ellis island with tears in their eyes and hope in their hearts and then after going through this entire cycle this epic there's mikey in that fantastic flashback at the end of the film and he's reflecting on his life and there's the four brothers sitting down at the table, and Sonny's upset because Mikey wants to join the army and fight the good fight, the idealist. But at the end of the movie, there's Michael Corleone. He's lost his wife. He killed his brother. You see him thinking about the arc of his life and the choices he's made. And he, he made all the wrong ones, or so it would appear. The moral of The Godfather is, don't be afraid of. <laughs> okay, fair enough. They really try to be good. They really are idealistic. They have excellent morals. They're decent people. But they're a little blind. They don't really look at what they're doing um, or what is being done in their name very effectively. And the narratives are just so amazing. I mean, Rachel Maddow, you know, a few months ago when this whole uh, Ukraine thing started, she was like, our allies of Ukraine. I'm like, name me one conflict in the entire 270-year history of the United States in which the Ukraine fought on your side. It didn't exist. There's no way, right? They were part of the, the Warsaw Pact during the Cold War. They were, they were part of the Russians, uh, you know, part of the communist enemy and so forth and so on. You have never fought a conflict in which the Ukraine was your ally, ever. But an interesting point I wanted to get back to on that is the, the character of Italy. You've lived here for many years, but you need to understand the deep inner secrets of Italy, okay? <laughs> the government walks out and it says, everybody should turn down their thermostat because we're supporting the Ukraine. And why does the government do that? The government does that because they want the press to report that and the Americans and the others to feel the narrative. But all the mothers and fathers and especially grandmas in Italy, they say, listen, in Italy, there are rules and there are guidelines. And whatever the government says is just a freaking guideline, okay? We're going to turn up the heat to whatever number we feel comfortable with. And that's just it. And the government had better not try to increase 
the cost of fuel, better subsidize it because otherwise we'll be out in the streets electing a new government. At the end of the day, we're about taking care of ourselves, our families, our, our people. That comes first. And a long way later comes what everybody else thinks. We don't care what anybody else thinks. The, the Italians are, are smart enough not to make that public. They just listen to statements the, from the government about we're going to do this. And in Italy, if the government said the sky was blue, everybody would look up just to check whether it was true or not, because nobody believes anything they say. So, you know, it's just a different world. You know, in other places like Germany, everybody follows rules. In Italy, nobody follows Well, Italy behaves quite well, and I think you would agree. And I think we do like to discuss cultural realities and the national character of countries. And let's hope we have something more positive to discuss on our next podcast. And please check out my website at baileyalexander.com with lots of little films and essays and lovely pictures of Europe. And if you're uh, traveling around northern Italy, you'll want to check out Lake Garda, which has some of the best cruising in the world. In fact, we just went uh, on uh, Strada del Fora yesterday, which is what Winston Churchill called the eighth wonder of the world. And I'll, I'll post a video of that extraordinary drive. So in, until then, arrivederci.